Yeah, I'm just not thinking. I shouldn't be preaching this morning. Should I? So good to be with you. I had a great time last week. I wasn't here last week because I was preaching on the North Shore at our sister congregation up in Beverly. So it was so fun to be with them. Um, we have three churches in the area, Antioch, Brighton, Antioch, Waltham, and then the Harbor, which is in Beverly. And so every once in a while, as the pastor overseeing all these three congregations, I, I like to go and visit and speak and preach. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity um, to be there last week. I heard that John Prickett did a fantastic job. So give it up for John Prickett. He did such a good job that I had somebody confess to me today, but I won't say who it was, that they were so convicted about speech that they were telling on other people how bad their speech. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sermons are good uh, if, you, if you leave convicted, not only to change behavior that might not be honoring to God, but you leave more desirous to love Jesus with your whole heart. So thank you, John, for giving us that challenge to let our speech um, connect our hearts with God and with one another. I am always stirred, and I think that we all should be stirred, but I'm always stirred when I get to hear new stories about faith in Christ. Aren't you excited when you, you meet somebody and, and like they tell you their story, and it's like I'm hearing the gospel for the very first time? Uh, Philemon, the book of Philemon, it says there, it says, I pray, Philemon 6 says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you might have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. So I think when we tell our faith, tell our story, we're reminded how good God is, right? When you tell your story, you sometimes go, man, I have it good. We are reminded of what Christ has done for us. But when we hear other people's stories, that same thing happens. And so this week, uh, we had the opportunity to have some, some people in our home, and I, I, met, uh, I met a man for the first time, and he shared his story with me. As a, as a man, uh, I actually don't even know how old he is, but I'm gonna, if you're here, I'm looking around the seat so I don't offend you if I guess the wrong age, but um, probably in his 30s and living, living a life apart from God. His work causes him to move to another part of uh, this country, and when he moves, upon arriving at that location, his neighbors reach out to him, and they come over, and they share food, and they, they encourage him and, and his family and serve them, and then maybe after the first or second time, they tell him about Jesus, and they, invi- they tell him their story, and then they invite him to church, and so he goes to church, and the, the music at church kind of reminded, reminded him of church. I mean, reminded him of the music that he listened to when he would go to the Catholic youth group uh, in his younger days. And so he said, I like this. I think I'll stick around. And over the course of his time there, Jesus gets a hold of his heart, and he surrenders his life unto the Lord. And that would be alone be an awesome story. As he was telling the story, I was just like, man, I love Jesus. Jesus is so good. And moving him around, moving him by neighbors that are willing to boldly tell him about Jesus and serve him, not only with their words, but their actions. But the story doesn't stop there. The story goes on that he, in finding his faith, he had lots of time on his hands. And so he just started reading the Bible. And he couldn't put it down. And he just started getting more and more encouraged and stoked by the word of God. And it was consuming him. And God was getting a hold of his life. So he wasn't just saved, but his life was being transformed. 
And so then he started serving people. And he started loving people in his area. And he got involved in the church. And he got involved in youth ministry. And started working with youth. Once was lost, now found. Was blind and now he sees. And the transformation of the gospel was so powerful that this man who had no walk with God prior to this change, but a year or so later was giving his time and energy to serve and to love youth and to serve his community with his faith. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's just one story. I tell it because that was this week's story. And may it be that we are either telling or listening or hearing about stories like this on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. I was so encouraged. My question to us is this kind of gospel transformation that happened in this man's life, and, and I could tell you my own story, but you've heard my story quite a bit. For those of you who are new, you'll hear it at some point if you come back. But is this our story? Is this your story? That when you met Jesus, He not only changed the way that you thought, He not only changed, the, changed who and what you worshipped, but He changed the way we live because He lives in us. Well, this is really the context of James 2, verses 14 through 26. And I would say that the theme in this section of Scripture, if real clearly, is this. I would, I would speak it this way, that genuine faith produces genuine change. Genuine faith in Christ Jesus, a genuine encounter with the living God, produces a, gen, a genuine change. And that genuine change is seen and felt, not just heard. It's not just words coming out of our mouth. It's not just singing louder when the worship really gets good. God's really excited when you sing loud words, but if the actions of our life, if the transformation of our life is not lived out by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, then James asks the question, can such faith really save you, or are you really saved? So read with me James chapter 2, verse 14. And let's listen to James as he talks about it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? As he's writing here to the church, remember he's writing to the, to the church that's scattered throughout the region in the area in which he lives. From Jerusalem out, he's writing to the churches, or the church, Big C, all throughout Samaria and Judea and even to the uttermost parts of the world. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And in the Greek, when a question, the way that a question is asked implies the answer. So this is a rhetorical question that's giving you the answer. <laughs> Can such faith like this save, save him? And the answer implied is no. And you'll, you'll see that as you, you read on. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, one of you will say, and he's setting up an imaginary argument with, maybe a, a theology that was going on and being spoken at the time. But someone might say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, his response, 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, a very common declaration among um, the Jewish faith, that there is one God, one Lord of all. This common expression, you say, um, I believe, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it useless? Was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that belief um, he's, he's stressing here that when you see that scripture spoken of Abraham in Genesis, Paul speaks about it in Romans, and now here in James, when it says Abraham believed, that belief is not just words. It's not just a mental assent, but it was accompanied by an action. That belief was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called what? God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous, by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What good is it? What good is faith without works or deeds? It's not good. Or valid at all. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7 when he says, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. When we have an encounter with the living God, when Jesus communicates who he is to us, we open our hearts and our life to him, and he is received, we believe him, we listen to his message, we believe in him, we receive eternal life, he comes to live in us. The very, very thing that happens in our life when Jesus makes up res- takes up residence in our heart is he changes our life. He changes the way we think, we see, we do, we smell, Every aspect of our life is transformed by the living God. And Jesus is saying when that happens, that tree is automatically going to bear good fruit. It's automatically going to respond or have the impulse or the action of who the Holy Spirit is. Faith, if it's not accompanied with deeds, is dead. Genuine faith produces genuine change. Genuine change is seen not just is seen and felt and not just heard by others. So some, when they read this, read this scripture, and even when it was taught, there was some d- debate within the church, even in, during that time. For those of you who know the, the history of our Bible, the book of James was one of the last books put into the canon because there was the concern that people would think that James is saying that we have to do something to earn our salvation. That we actually have to be religious, maybe even some were saying we had, you had to be circumcised, that you had to fulfill all of the works of the law and also believe in Jesus to be saved. 
or to do things to work out our salvation. That would be called legalism or Judaism, uh, as, as it's called, as it's addressed in the church. And so Paul, in his writings in Romans and in Ephesians and in many of his letters, attacks that theology that you have to do something to be saved. Right? Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified, this is Paul speaking, by faith apart from the works of the law, or Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For it is by grace, that unmerited favor, that unmerited work of God, not our work, the work that Christ Jesus did on the cross when he died for us and he shed his blood and his life for us that we might be forgiven, set free, and saved. That grace that we have been saved through grace and faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by some work that you've done so that no one can boast. So Paul really addresses, because that's another theology that's working in the church. You can't do anything. You can't do any work. It's faith and faith alone that saves you. So Paul is addressing those works prior to salvation. He's saying you can't base your salvation on, you can't be a good enough person. And sometimes when I go around and talk to people about salvation, he said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm saved. I've been in church all my life. So? I've met a lot of people in church all their life that have been the meanest people I've ever met. They have no mark of Jesus in them. I've met some mean deacons. That's why Wake Forest is called the Demon Deacons because there's so many of them. For those of you from Wake Forest, I mean, pardon me, but I, I, I cannot understand any other reason for that. No. It doesn't qualify you. You are not in, in you are not gonna go to heaven because you go to church. You're not just gonna go to heaven because you are the loudest singer singer during the worship time. You're not gonna go to heaven just because. You make a generous offering in the offering plate. It, none of those things, prior to a work of Jesus Christ transforming your life in the grace that He gives us, because apart from Him, the Scripture says, we are still sinners. We are dead in our works. Paul is saying, you can't do that. The only way that we enter into the pearly gates, the only way that we enter into an abundant life that Christ promised to us is when we put our faith and trust in the living Jesus who died and rose again and he sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us and loves us and, and communicates broadly and loudly. I love you, accept me. That's where we find salvation. So Paul is saying no works. But then there was also another theology that was going on during the time and it was called antinomian, antinomianism. Let's call this sloppy grace. The thought that after we're saved, we're set free from the moral law. And we can do whatever we want to because we're saved. And once we're saved, hey, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live because we're in. Have you ever been around any Christians like that? They speak Jesus. They might even have a tattoo on their arm on their forehead, they got bumper stickers on their cars, and yet when you're around them, you're like, man, I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are, 
Because how you're living and what you're proclaiming has nothing, looks nothing like what I see Jesus or the Word of God speak about. Oh, brother, it's all grace. God loves me. And James is saying, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. When we meet Jesus and Jesus is coming to our life, all of a sudden, the old is gone and the new has come. If there is something, if there's not something new about you, meaning like you are a completely different person from the way you were living and the way you were talking, the way you're acting, and your desire is to live in that way. Now, listen, I want to say one thing really quickly before you guys, anybody gets lost, because when we read that passage of Scripture, all of a sudden, for those of us who have sin in our life, anybody want to raise your, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, I'll wait until everybody's hands up. Anybody that has sin in their life thinks, oh no, am I saved? If, you, if there's anybody in here that has a prick of a conscience, when you read this passage of Scripture, you go, oh God, do I have saving faith? I don't think that's what God is talking about. It's almost like the illustration of a pig in mud, right? Are you wallowing in the mud and loving the mud and want to be in the mud all the time? That's when you should start thinking about it. If you've fallen in the mud and you want to get out, that's a better option. We all fall in the mud sometimes. We all make bad choices. None of us are perfect in this room. But the nature of a believer who's been transformed by Jesus Christ is I don't want to stay in the mud pit. I don't want to live and speak and do as one who is opposite of the nature and character of Christ because not only is it not a good reflection or not a good indication that I am communing with the Lord, I'm blocking off something that's going on in me, but I'm a terrible witness to the people that are around me. When I say I'm, I'm a Jesus follower, but don't follow me. I mean, follow them. I, I don't really do it. I just say I believe it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What does this faith look like? Well, the first illustration he gives is this brother and sister who come to them. And, and, and the implication of this passage of Scripture in verse 15 through 17 is that they don't have any clothes. They don't have any food. They are in desperate need of assistance. This is an easy one. This is a softball from James. He's saying if, if you have somebody who is in your church come to you and they are clothless, they are foodless, or you put in whatever less they have, it is apparent that they have need. And your only response is, well, brother, just bless you. Let's just pr- let's hold hands and pray. Oh God, just help, help this brother. Hey, hey honey, could you get me a coat? It's a little cold out here. Uh, help, help this brother. Mmm, those ribs smell good, honey. Keep, tur- can you turn them over on the fire? Help this brother and sister with their food and clothing. May you provide abundantly with, for them in. Jesus' name. All right, well, God bless you. I hope it works out. <sighs> Woo, let's get back to it. If, 
any part of that story or script displays your own response to need around you. Then James is saying, you need to meet Jesus. You need to meet Jesus. Because no believer can sit and look at a person who is in dire circumstances and not do something. You might not be able to do everything. You might only have a portion of what's going to bless, but you're going to do that. And then you're going to get on your cell phone and you're going to call sister and brother so-and-so and and you're going to say, hey, we need to work out something here because our sister, our brother, our this family's in need. That's the response of genuine faith that changes us. Faith that is genuine changes our life. And that change is not just heard, it's seen and it's felt in our lives. theologian by the name of Doug Moose says this, words, sermons, so he's, he's talking to me, sermons, prayers, confessions of faith, wise advice, encouragement are, are indispensable to true Christianity. We need all of them, but they are shown to have real meaning, and he quotes somebody else, reminds us when people can see actions that correspond to those words. When you talk about people that impact your life for the gospel, how often is it about what they've said versus how they live their life? Almost any time that somebody says, so-and-so, man, I am so challenged by their life, it's not because when they get together, they're preaching at them the whole time. It's not because they just have such good theology. Our impact and how we are impacted is when people live out the gospel. Because that is what the gospel is. It's not just a gospel of words. It's a gospel of action. James goes on and he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And he sets up this argument about is there a possibility that we can either have be people of faith or be people of action and still be saved. And he says, you can't do either one. And he uses this picture of demons. This will get our attention. This is a good illustration. Every time I've ever read this since I was 18, I was like, whoa, James, that is not right. That is too close to home. When we rest, I'm so sorry about my, when I do that, sorry when I'm yelling in the mic. When we rest on our belief without action, when we profess that we are Christians, but we're not living it. He says, you know, belief, even demons have good orthodoxy. They know that Jesus is Lord. They know that he is the Savior of all mankind. They know that he's coming back. They know that there will be a resurrection of the dead and that we will meet up. And they know there's a judgment. And the reason that they have good orthodoxy is that they know that when that judgment comes, they're goners. Thus, they shudder when they think about it. And some theologians have wondered as we read through James, if James is not saying, should you not shudder? 
those who are listening to this message, if you are ones that are confessing and talking about Jesus with your mouth, but you're not living it with your life, how much different are you than this illustration if your life transformation is not lived out in front of other people and lived out before God? Another, another theologian says this, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. It's okay to have a good theology of how you believe in God, but does that theology possess you? Is Jesus a theology or is he your Lord and Savior? Does he possess your life? Two more illustrations from James. One is about Abraham and the other is about Rahab. What an interesting contradiction if you know anything about the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of the Judaic faith, the patriarch of patriarchs, the the shining example of a man of faith, Abraham. And then Rahab, the woman of faith, Abraham, born of lineage, Rahab, born of lineage, Abraham, well-respected, Rahab, not so much. Rahab is a prostitute. And so James uses these two Hall of faith people, because Rahab is, is honored in her story as a woman of great faith. But he uses it, I believe, to let us know that no matter where you sit in this room, no matter what your story is, great lineage or despicable lineage or actions or responses or wherever you come from, however you view yourself before Christ, does not matter. Because in Christ, we are new creations. And in our place of responding to God, faith is faith, no matter who it is or where it comes from. Abraham, verses 20 through 24. Synopsis. His faith was credited in his right, as righteousness, and James says that the faith that he exhibited was a faith with action because he was willing, when God said, to bring your son to sacrifice before me, he was willing to obey. So that first illustration about giving somebody a need is the, sac- is the, is the generosity or the sacrifice of our, of our, of our worldly possessions. It's, it's the move of compassion that God has borne in us because the Spirit of God lives in us. Another, another act or deed of righteousness is when we are willing to obey whatever the cost. So it's not just necessarily um, giving or doing, it's It starts first in the place of surrender. God, I am willing to obey you, whatever the cost. And the the obedience is the action that puts that faith into practice. So Abraham was willing to obey at great cost. To sacrifice something or someone who he loved very deeply in this story. Faith, James said, was proven in Abraham's life by what he did. He trusted in the character and the goodness of God, and he obeyed, even when he didn't understand. Anybody been there? Anybody been in the place where you don't understand, and you don't know why, and you can't imagine what God is up to? 
I'm looking around, I'm, I'm seeing stories in the room. But in the middle of that place of seeming contradiction or that place of mystery, the only step you have is to trust God and to do or to act in what God has called you to do. That, according to James, is an indicator that you have genuine faith, that your trust is in the right place. So what are the choices for you? Where does it apply to your life? As you were shaking your head, as you were thinking, I'll give you an illustration. When God says, I want you to give radically out of your finances to somebody who is in need. Sacrificially. When it looks like not going along with an immoral act with a person or a group of people because it goes against your faith and the representation of who Christ is in you. Maybe at the cost of friendship or, or social standing. Maybe choosing God and maybe God says, I want you to work here, or I want you to live here, and it's not where you want to work or it's not where you want to live, but because God's calling you, you can't get away from it. Maybe when you're wanting to date or uh, be in a relationship and God says, not this time, not in this way. What are these sacrifices that as you walk with Jesus and you are living for God, that he's speaking? And, and, and listen, part of this story right here in James goes along with the reality that God is not just some far off entity that set up some rules and regulations that if we follow them, then we have religion. God is a living God who is interacting with us, the scripture says is living in us, that's speaking to us so that when we say we respond to God as Abraham responded to God, we respond because God speaks to us like he speaks to Abraham. That God has little things that he speaks to us, like you shouldn't say that or you shouldn't do that, and we respond in obedience all the way to you should give this or you should do this dramatic. He speaks. And he creates a dialogue of relationship and friendship with us that as we obey, he is honored. And he asks us to do more things of obedience. He says those who are faith, faithful and little will be rulers of much. That when we walk out the little deeds of obedience and relationship with God, he gives us more trust and more opportunity to obey him so that we see people doing things. We're like, how in the world could you move your family all the way across the, the world to a place like that that's so dangerous and so threatening? Because God said, and I know God is faithful. I can trust him. Genuine faith produces genuine change in our life. And genuine change is not just heard, it's seen and it's felt in other people's lives when we come in contact with Jesus. The last illustration is Rahab. Remember Rahab, she hid the spies. She was from another, another, another faith, I mean another people group that didn't have the same God, but she came in contact with the living God and she put her faith and trust in that God and she hid those spies at the cost of her own life or at the risk, excuse me, at the risk of her own life. She actually didn't lose her life, but at the risk of her own life, she chose to embrace the living God of these spies instead of the God of her people. 
and she was credited as being a righteous and faith-filled woman. She put her faith on display by risking her life, or in this situation, her life. We put our faith, it's another work of God. Transformational faith means that we're not, we're not afraid to be associated with Jesus. We're not afraid to say, Jesus, you are the living God. And we're not afraid to put that faith and that declaration on the public display at the odds or at, at the opposition of those who might laugh at us, reject us. Some of us in the room come from places in the world that when you chose to, to believe in Jesus, you lost your family. There's, there's people in this room that the cost of believing in Jesus meant that their family has said, you're dead to us. And they've still embraced Jesus because they recognize that Jesus is the living God. That he's worthy of trust even when it doesn't make sense to them. And, it, it, and even when it comes at great loss. There's people in this room, when you found Jesus, your whole fin- friend group thought you were a crazy person. Can you, what? You're going to live for Jesus? And, and what does it look like? Are you kidding me? You're going to stop doing what? It was, for some of you, it was kind of like, whoa, that's, that's kind of weird. And then it went from you're still doing it and your friends were like, hey, okay, now stop it now. It was one thing when it was novel and you went off and you, you made this decision. But you know what? It's gone on long enough. Come on back and just be one of us. And you've changed. And it's cost you something. Genuine faith produces change that's felt and heard and seen by others. Ben, why don't you come on up as we conclude. So that last picture that James sums up, the very last verse of this passage of Scripture is he gives us another picture. And he says, just as the body, let me find it here because I thought to quote it wrong. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So he wraps it up by giving us a picture. He gives us a picture of a living body. And he's saying, just in case you haven't understood me, in the same way that if there is not a spirit, there is not air in this body, there's not something that's inside the body that's keeping the body alive. It's dead. Faith without works is just like that dead body. So my question to us is, are you dead or alive this morning? Are you dead or alive? I I believe, as I was praying over this message, I believe that, I I, I truly believe when the Word of God says that when when it's communicated, when we hear the Word of God, it says that it does not return void. Meaning every time you hear Scripture, and I apologize, if you got tricked into coming to church today, you just heard the living word of God as James was read. And so now it has effect in your life. You've, in a sense, what, what God is saying is you've got to do something with it. You've got to do something with it. You heard James speak and he said, hey, if you're just paying lip service to God and you're not living for God, you need to take a look at whether or not you know God. 
And he doesn't say it. Remember, he says, dear brothers and sisters, if you read James, he's not saying it out of condemnation. He's saying it as I would say it to you right now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and there's no condemnation for those, or there's no, there's no rejection. Ultimately, if you respond, there's condemnation and rejection if you don't respond to Jesus. You make that choice, though. And every ounce of God, every fiber of God's body is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. I want you to know this transformation. I want you to know this change. I want you to know this joy and excitement that Sean talked about with that first illustration. I want you to experience the living God in such a way that you don't care what people think because Jesus is in your life. I want it. I want it for you. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus would be saying if he's standing up here. I believe Jesus is speaking through me. This is his heart. But he also, now listen to me, he also doesn't want you to sit in church for the rest of your life and not know him. He also doesn't want you to visit for the one time that you're going to visit church in your life, and that might be true for somebody in this room. Usually it's Christmas or Easter, weddings or funerals, but sometimes you just kind of walk in. But if you're in this room for whatever reason and you're hearing this and you've heard the word of God, he does not want you to leave without knowing him. So wherever we are, I just ask you to stand up. And I want you to answer the question between you and God. I want you to ask the question rhetorically, am I dead or alive? God, am I dead or alive? So would you close your eyes and not be distracted by the left or the person on your left or right or forward and just ask that question. Lord, am I dead? Am I living religion? Am I living something that's not who you are? Am I, am I not on the right track? Am I dead? In my works, my dead, and my my disconnect between belief and action, or am I alive? I'm gonna just pause and let God speak to us right now. one of the most important pauses of your life for you to receive the conviction of the Lord and know that God never convicts us to condemn us. His conviction is to free us, to deliver us, to save us. If you are convicted right now that there's a chance that you don't know the living God. I would encourage you just to respond right where you are to Jesus. And say, Jesus, please forgive me. You can say it in your own words, mean it however you however you need to say it to mean it, but just say something like, Jesus, please forgive me. I've spoken your name. I've made a confession, but I haven't put my faith and trust in you. I've been religious. 
that I haven't been genuine in my faith. I want to know right now that I'm saved. I want your salvation, God. And I want to live a transformed life. So if that's you, just pray some kind of prayer like that. He's not condemning you. He's smiling if you're responding to that prayer, letting him feel you. He's thrilled that your eyes are opening and your heart's responsive to him.